HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. I read in Savour magazine recently that the New York Public Library had a problem to solve. They had a marvelous collection of 10,000 digitized menus from as far back as the 1800s, but no way to search the menu's contents. We're going to find out how they solved that problem when we come back with A Taste of the Past. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on A Taste of the Past here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And I just want to remind everyone that you can become a part of our Heritage Radio Network family. On the homepage in the upper right corner, there's a donate button, and you just click that button, and you can donate anything large or small. Don't pay attention to the categories. Anything you want to give, we'll take and keep our great programs coming. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the New York Public Library had this has this incredible collection of menus, and they have started digitizing them, putting them online, but they had no way to search the contents, and boy, could we learn a lot from those old menus, like how much did a steak cost in 1900, or what in the world, when, when did dandelions first appear on menus? Well, they solved that problem, or at least someone attempted to solve that problem, and she is my guest today, Rebecca Fetterman. Rebecca is the Culinary Collections and Electronic Resources Librarian at the New York Public Library, and together with Ben Verschbau and Michael Inman, has launched a new site called What's on the Menu, and re- and I'm going to have her tell us all about it. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So tell me, this, I mean, I have seen a part of the collection. There was an exhibition that um, Bill Grimes put together years ago, and the culinary historian's did a tour through it, and it was on display for quite a while. But now this this collection has grown. Tell me a little bit first about the the how the collection first came to be and how the New York Public Library got its hands on menus. Uh, the menus came to the library through a, a donor, um, a volunteer of the library named Miss Butoff, and she started collecting menus from what we can gather in 1900. Um, she wanted to be part of the library community, and she wrote to the director of the library asking if, if he would be willing to have menus in the collection. And he said yes, and so she started collecting menus from different restaurants and would write to hotels throughout the country 
asking them to donate bills of fare to the library, and many, many did. And by the time she left, there were about 25,000 menus. Wow. So she didn't have, there was not a particular theme to her collecting. It was, she just wrote and got what she could. Exactly. What's the oldest menu in the collection? The oldest menu is from 1843, from the Astor House. Ah. Um, So we have... Even though she started in 1900, we have quite a few menus from the late part of the 19th century. Well, then you have, I would imagine, there are, and not knowing all the, you know, the pieces to the collection, a lot of hotel menus, because there weren't many restaurants in that day. Exactly. There are a lot of hotel menus, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of Delmonico's menus of special events that they had at the, at the restaurants. Uh-huh. I'll say. So, and altogether, you have now how many Approximately. Approximately uh, about 45,000. Wow. Because we have quite a few that we've been collecting in the present day. We haven't cataloged all of them yet, uh, but we're guessing around 45,000. So, And you haven't gotten them all up online yet? No, right. that's, that's, that's still happening. Um, all right, before we go into some of the specifics of those menus, because I have got lots of questions about that, What? tell me um, about this What's on the Menu program. What's that all about? So What's on the Menu launched about a year ago. And what we were seeing is that people were coming in to use the menu collection, which is housed in our Rare Books division. And they were searching sometimes by year, which you could easily do. And we'd bring up a box or we'd take menus from a specific year or a specific restaurant. A box of dusty old menus. Or we we also have a a database. So if you were looking for a menu from Howard Johnson's, you could type that in, find which box that was in, and request it, and we'd bring that menu to you. But there was no way of knowing or searching by dish. So if somebody was coming in asking for... The you know where fried eggs you know I'm looking for appearances of fried eggs or I'm looking for appearances of steak tartare. There was no way to search that, so you would have to go back and do lots of other research. And we were understanding that this would be a really interesting new sort of data set to have. So we had about ten thousand menus that had already been digitized for a digital. Um, we have a digital gallery that the library has. So we took those menus and we put them in this website and asked people to simply transcribe what they see on the menu. Just type the dish. If there's a price, type the price as well. And slowly but surely create a data of, of dishes, a database of dishes is what we call it. And those 10,000 menus went, if you'll excuse my pun, like hotcakes, and now we are digitizing, or slowly but surely digitizing the rest of the collection so that we'll have this huge data set of dishes, not just the menus, which you can see online, which is great, but also the dishes. Now, as I understand it, this is something that the public can help you with. Exactly. Okay, tell us how they go about that. <laughs> if you go to menus.nypl.org, that's the site for what's on the menu, and if you click on a menu, and then you click on the left of a dish. It'll be clear when you're on the site. Then you simply just type what you what you see. So grilled so, cheese, forty five cents. So done. I can I can sit at home and I can go to nypl.org. No, okay. <laughs> menus. Menus. Dot nypl. Dot org. Dot nypl. Dot org. And I can participate. Right? Exactly. I can and start typing the dishes and the prices. And exactly. There's no registration required. Um, you don't have to live in New York. You don't have to live in New York. We've had we've had people co- write in from all over the world, say how much they enjoy 
transcribing menus during their lunch hour or classes like small school children are learning to type using what's on the menu. Well, and what a treasure trove for somebody doing research. I know how difficult it is to really find certain information and now to be able to type in turtle soup and see where when it stopped appearing on menus Mm -hmm. as well as when it started appearing on menus once all these pieces of information get (laughs) put up on the website right and the goal also is to hopefully one day have other library collections have other menu collections and libraries throughout the country Mm -hmm. participate and and put their menus on our site as well so that the data set is that much bigger. It would be wonderful if there could be, and there will be, I'm sure one day, like a centralized site, a library site. And now you have to, you know, have permission to go into certain university library mm-hmm. sites or or um, other libraries around the country. But I think at some at some close in the future date we will have a centralized site and that would be wonderful because so many different libraries around the country have wonderful menu collections as well yeah and especially when you're trying to research um you know localized cuisine midwestern cuisine um northwest you know appearances of different meats Uh, that's that would be so helpful exactly mark collection is you know, international, but really focused on New York for I the would most ima- part. Yeah, I would imagine it is. Well, tell me, um, what are some of the, you said the oldest menu, what are some of the outstanding menus that pop out to, in your mind in the collection? Oh, there are so many. Um, <laughs> well, there are different reasons for, for a menu to be special for me. Um, it could be that it, it marks a historical occasion, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty inauguration in 1886, or um, we have President McKinley's um, inauguration dinner. We also have menus that are actually on the What's on the Menu site of his funeral procession, the, uh, the Pullman train car from um, Buffalo to Canton, Ohio. Hmm. Um, so you see that as well. But then there are just the everyday menus that I find, you know, either they're graphically really beautiful and interesting or a lot of children's menus I find really adorable um, and or there are menus I was showing some students the other day uh, menus from 1933 and you look at you know February of 1933 and it's a hotel menu and on the back of the hotel menu there's a notice for prohibition you know mm-hmm. this is a notice to our patrons about prohibition law etc cetera, etc cetera. and then just a few months later in the middle of April that is gone and you have you know beer and malts on the back because you were allowed to you know i think it was april 9th um you were allowed to serve low alcohol beers and light wines so you see that change in history through these primary sources which i find really fascinating so not only is it culinary history it's cultural history too exactly. and, and let's talk about economic history i mean exactly. as i said what was the you know like like researching what the price of a steak was i i was um intrigued by looking at some of the old menus and seeing dinner a dollar 50 you know or 75 cents i'm thinking wow that speaks volumes mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we were thinking of putting in a price converter you know just so you could put in the price and then type in 2012 and see how much it would what cost it, today yeah. well unfortunately i think we know <laughs> yeah. but and then in you can always tell you know when you've got one of those diner menus when the the glossy look and the and lots of photographs of lots hamburgers of photographs. and grilled cheese and 
Yeah, there's a lot of humor in a lot of the menus, which I which I love. Ah, interesting. Just whimsical characters and um, um, a lot of the sort of diner kinds of menus mm-hmm. have that. If you want it, we'll serve it. Kind exactly. Of, <laughs> that, that kind of attitude, right? Um, you did mention, and, and I talked to you about this before, that some of the older menus had a lot more graphic design, um, kind of artists' renditions of nothing in particular to do with food often. but Well, sometimes know. it's interesting. Sometimes there'll be menus for hotels, and the cover will just say menu, and it'll it'll show an orange or it'll show a banana. And these were often the same graphics that would be used on a few different menus from a few different hotels and restaurants. Yeah. So you see, or Christmas, there'd often be the same graphic that would be used in different hotels. So clearly there was a printer doing a lot of these menus. When you say you have a lot of special occasion menus and different holiday menus, so restaurants would print up and take quite a bit of time to make a, a, a very wonderful presentation of a holiday menu, right? Yes. Lincoln's birthday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, those are the top. Hmm, the top Holidays, special menus. that would be, yeah. yeah. Um, and I've seen wonderful sort of Art Nouveau kind of mm-hmm. renderings of women with, you know, trailing tresses wrapping all around the menu and thinking, oh, it's about food, but it doesn't look like food on, exactly. you know, on the picture. That's great. Um, what we're going to do is take a short break because when we come back, we're going to talk about another exhibition that kind of ties into this whole menu project. So stay with us and we'll come back on A Taste of the Past. White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old, multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meats that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. We are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Rebecca Fetterman, the Culinary Collections Library at the New York Pub- Librarian at the New York Public Library, and we're talking about the menu collection and a new website, What's on the Menu. Uh, Rebecca, is a lot of what we can see from these menus, as you said, is sort of like a snapshot of a specific time and place and, and dishes that we no longer see on the menu, like cold pineapple cream it was one thing that was mentioned, and... Um, and you said you'd like to explore dishes that have actually remained popular and some that, you know, kind of fell out of out of favor. You have a blog, a very interesting blog, I might add, that's called cookedbooks.com, um, where you do talk about some of these that you don't have a chance to really describe. There's no place on the website to really talk about them, and that's a lot of fun um, to read. I encourage listeners to, to go there also. Um, as far as the dishes and the menus that are digitized people who can use this database, who do you find coming into the library um, or before it was, you know, at home on the computer, but who do you find really uses these collections the most? Well, it's um, 
since it's been online, it's harder to tell. Can't tell, um, can't tell who's in their yeah. office, in their Although, computer. <laughs> we found that a lot of the people who are transcribing seem to be library folk mm-hmm. um, and just people are really interested in transcribing. I think once we make the data a little um, more visible on the site, I think we're hoping that more historians and chefs and people who are really interested in, in the data will also will come visit. But for the menus that are the physical menus that are in the rare books division, it's a variety of users. I mean, graphic designers, um, chefs, historians, writers, you know, his, uh, novelists, people who just want to get that period detail yeah. correct. Yeah, sure. Um, or just food oh. enthusiasts, people who are really interested in menus. That's how I started looking at them. I just was, I knew that there was a collection there and I just couldn't wait to look at them. Uh, but I mean, again, I just, I just marvel at what a, a trove of information this collection is. I mean, yeah. as you say, novelists, I, I didn't even think about that. You're writing about a particular period. Somebody walks into a restaurant or is hosting a dinner party. What would they serve? There you could search it and you yeah. could find out. Oh, that's great. Or how language has changed. Um, I was doing a demonstration for some students recently, and I was showing them how to transcribe a menu, and I transcribed alligator pear. And I asked the students, you know, do you know what alligator pear is? And no one had any idea. And then we went to the alligator pear data page, and it appears on many, many, many menus. So I said this was obviously a very popular dish. And what's great on the site is we have these lookup links. So if you don't know what a dish is or you're curious about it, you can go to Wikipedia or you could go to um, Google Images or you can go to Epicurious or menu pages to see if if a restaurant is currently serving that dish today. So I went to Google Images for alligator pear, and there pops up an avocado. (laughs) And everyone was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And just seeing how language has changed over time. And from alligator pear, now we have avocado. Interesting, yeah. And not only um, the language of of the dishes themselves, but also the service, how service in restaurants was divided up, or the the categories of dishes, words that are no longer used, entremet. Mm -hmm. We say dessert, we don't say entremet, right? Um, What did you see, anything else that you noticed about the way that the menus are actually really written, language or... Um, well, there's, you know, depending on the kind of restaurant, you know, the sort of mid-century restaurant will often be a fold-out menu, and then the cocktails are always sort of on the, on the very end. Um, to on the two sides. On the two, the two sides, sides, yeah, mm-hmm. of the menu. So you, could, you can see those. Um, or, you know, roasts or joints. Joints, right. Um, you'll see often on menus. Um, one of my favorites is farinaceous, which would be used to describe pasta or anything made with, you know, wheat, farina. Um, I put that on the menu today and people would go, what? what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Although it appears as recently as the 1980s. Oh, really? Yeah. I, we have a 1980s Beatrice Inn menu, actually, hmm. um, that has farinaceous on the menu. So a lot of a lot of... That word was appearing, I think, as, you know, fairly recently. Or they were going back and, and kind of using it to, you know, continue the uh, the myth of it being an old, mm-hmm. you know, style restaurant. I hope, it, I hope somebody brings it back. Yeah. It's, well, it certainly is descriptive. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing. It's description. Description of the dishes. Not much. No. Right? Not much description. Compared to today, where you know which farmer and what farm and what cow the milk came from. Exactly. <laughs> There's really not that much description. Um if you look on the site, you'll see it's very, you know, there'll be salads, you know, romaine or iceberg or what have you, um, or 
spring chicken roasted. You know, that's about as much of a description as you might get for some of these menus. So you sort of had to know what that dish was to get an idea of whether or not you wanted to order it. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, sometimes it goes to the opposite extreme. Today, sometimes we have a little too much information to right. put on the menus. By the time I finish reading it, I've forgotten what the main dish was, exactly. and I don't know if I want to order it anymore. That would be an interesting <laughs> thing to research, is when the idea of no substitutions appears on a menu. Ah, interesting. Yeah. When it becomes sort of the chef that is determining what you're eating as opposed to you having that choice. That's right. Interesting. Well, you have another, talking about eating and what you want to eat, there is another exhibition that is uh, a, a brief one, right? No, it's, oh, it's up, not going to be long. It's going to okay. be up for a while. Okay, I thought it was a. I thought it was only a. Okay, I'm not going to spoil. But June 22nd, there is a new exhibition opening. Tell us what it is. On June 22nd, which is next week, mm-hmm. uh, we have an exhibition opening at the library called Lunch Hour NYC which I co-curated with the great Laura Shapiro, who's a wonderful culinary She's historian. She's been on the show, and we just we love her. Yeah. She's wonderful. So uh, Laura and I combed through the NYPL collections to sort of bring s- some stories together to tell a social history of lunch in New York. Um, so it'll be up until February. Well, a couple of comments about it on the, on the site have appeared, saying that New Yorkers kind of created this whole thing among to them unto themselves i don't know a lot of people across the country might yeah, disagree <laughs> <laughs> but that they're yes. work obsessed and money obsessed and so lunch became this quick quick have to do but you want it to be good and uh and inter- interplayed with that was the evolution of a new kind of restaurant or in the automat correct right the automat well the automat the Horn and Hard Art Automat, mm-hmm. there were automats before, but the Horn and Hard Art Automat started in Philadelphia in 1902. And a decade later, they brought it to New York in 1912, and it really took off in New York, and there were automats all over the city. And we are fortunate enough at the library to have the papers of the Horn and Hard Art Automat, so we have the whole archive, which is a treasure trove of information, and we only hope that other restaurants can can keep all the kind of content that we're finding in the Horn and Hard Art papers because it's a wonderful documentation of a, of a restaurant. So the lunch exhibition will include that. What, what are some of the other elements of, of the exhibition, the lunch exhibition? We, um, we have the, we're actually, re- we took an old automat section and we're, we're you know, putting it back together so you can see what an automat looked like. We also have some information on um, home lunch, Um, which is really hard to a lot it's hard to research because it's hard to know what people eat in their homes today and you know back then it's really hard to gauge so we look at the history of you know peanut butter and dieting and sliced bread and we talk about the history of school lunch in new york Um, it's a new york focused exhibition so we don't um, talk about early school lunch throughout the country but specify new york um, and we talk about power lunch, too. You can't talk about lunch in New York without the idea of power lunch, That's right. That's which right. started really as early as Delmonico's in the 1830s before there was a term for power lunch. So we, we talk about that, but we also talk about different kinds of power, um, not just the rich eating fancy food at the Four Seasons, which we have, which is wonderful because we have the Joe Baum papers, but also smaller groups getting together over a meal and having sort of power within within that community yeah. uh, getting business done having exactly. meetings or just you know taking a moment to sort of 
come together and hear what the other person's doing. Exactly. It still goes on a lot today. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Um, This and the menus, of course, I'm sure there were very well, often there are still today, of course, different menus for lunch as there are for dinner. Mm -hmm. So is there a period of time where where the lunch menu actually started to appear or the lunch? We have a lot of early quick lunch menus. Um, You know, those were. 1900 we have um we have these wonderful cafeteria menus from 1900 which are they specify lunch i mean the idea of eating out for lunch makes a lot of sense because you are working and you don't necessarily have the time to go home or you don't necessarily um live close you know work close to home Mm -hmm. so you have to go somewhere else to eat so even though you might have dinner and breakfast at home this idea of lunch being a very public meal from very early on um is something we, we we talk about. Well, that actually was the impetus for a lot of restaurants to come into being. Exactly. Because there were, you know, there were boarding houses, but people, as you say, they didn't live at home, didn't live close to home. They couldn't go home for lunch, and that, that yeah. started, you know, opening of restaurants. Also, restaurants where ladies could lunch. Exactly. <laughs> right? and the ladies who lunched, then it took on a whole other meaning. But, right. you know, there were, women just couldn't go into any old restaurant and, exactly and be or feel, respectable you know. exactly or feel comfortable and um there are articles you know talking about you know it's 1917 there are articles where's a lady who works to to go for lunch the cafeterias are too crowded there's too much hustling and bustling um where's a quiet place for a woman to be able to have a have a meal mm-hmm. ah shrafts exactly we, we miss <laughs> answer shrafts <laughs> <laughs> right right uh, all kinds of good information and and all starting from menus and and the talk about menus i love it i think it's great uh one thing another thing there was something else about the menus i wanted to ask you um, and that, oh, I, what I want to do is make um, anyone out there listening who might be involved in a restaurant or a chef, please, 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 as Rebecca said, save your papers, yes. save your old menus, um, whatever research, any special dinners, right? It's amazing how much you can learn from these materials. And I know chefs and restaurants have a lot of literally bigger fish to fry sometimes. But, <laughs> um, but you know, for future historians, this kind of information is invaluable. And there's such a restaurants are such a huge part of our social history that to not have these documents is a real loss. Yeah. Well, of course, now what's wonderful too, the good and the bad, is that so many restaurants post their menus online. So right. you can really get an idea of prices, types of dishes. But know, I want the service. print. I know, I know. <laughs> and some of them are, as I say, they are just a joy to look at. They and, are, yeah, and huge. Some I could not believe the size of some of the menus. They're, yeah, you know, very, very. We large. have an oversized, you know, boxes for very large menus. So, <laughs> um, well, and again, I I want to remind people that you too can be part of this project. What's on the menu? And you go to menus dot nypl dot org. Okay, and then and you can if you have a you know a spare hour to give. You can transcribe the menus. You just go. So what again? You just you see what whatever it is you see on the menu that has not been transcribed. You've mm-hmm. got little check marks on the mm-hmm. menus that have been transcribed. You just if you see a dish come up that says cold pineapple cream, seventy five cents. You type cold, cold pineapple cream. There's a, there's a spot for you to type. It's very exactly. self explanatory. And we also me, have menus <laughs> under review. So even though people have may finished ha, may have finished transcribing it, it's always nice for for some of our transcribers to look at some of the work to be sure it's all 
it's all good and, and correct. And we have people on the back end also doing that as That's well. That's good, yeah. So. Editing the, exactly. the input. And then it doesn't make you feel so guilty when you go in to use the collection and yes. <laughs> say, well, I helped. I helped put it online. I guess I can use it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, what, and, and that is, again, a wonderful service that you uh, are allowing people to do is for culinary research, for cultural research, again, it's just to search all these dishes. Okay. A dish that most surprised you that was on a menu? I didn't. I don't mean to catch you by no, surprise. No, okay. But <laughs> something that pops out. I mean, cold pineapple cream is interesting. Yeah. But. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, it. A, a lot of dishes just sort of... I mean, there are certain menus that have very curious dishes. Like the Explorers Club is a club that still exists. Yes, indeed. And is known for their crazy menus serving, you know, rattlesnake and tarantulas and things like that. So that's always, those are always kind of fun to stumble upon. So Unusual. Unusual items. Beetles, okay. (laughs) I think I'll pass on that dinner, right? (laughs) But, But yeah, indeed. I mean, you see, that's why I say different parts of the country too. We would see, um, perhaps some different meats, but also different cuts and different um, names for dishes that they're all familiar with that, you know, people living on the East Coast or the West Coast would have no idea what some Midwestern dish, you Mm -hmm. know, is just because of the name, but everyone else is familiar with it. Yeah. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting concept in in bringing together a larger collection. Yeah. And, you know, there's, uh, we would love to work with other libraries. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I applaud your efforts and I thank you so much for bringing this collection to the public to participate in and to use as research and hope that you'll come back and join us again. Thank you so much. Rebecca Fetterman from the New York Public Library. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.